Okay, so we're going to be talking about sexual intimacy tonight. And this is, this is the book I wanted to recommend because I know that Chris has recommended it. How many of you have actually read this? Oh, would you like to know what it is? Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. You can't read this little title from back there. <laughs> Humor is great, okay. Has anybody actually read it? One, two, three and a half people maybe? Okay. <laughs> so I would like to say this is a fantastic book. Read it, read it slowly, absorb it, think about it. It is wonderful. So if I had any book to recommend on this topic, this would be it to start with. And I will bring the one next week that I would say would be your next book on the technicalities and function of it all. We're not talking about function tonight. So anyways, as I was saying, as I have pondered and thought about all of this, I really didn't even know where I was going tonight when I started putting this together because there's just so much that I could talk about. Do we focus on where the world is and how we should be different? Do we um, look at a certain passage and just break down a certain passage? All of those things that have their place and could be important. But um, it may surprise you where I'm actually going to start, but let me start with my introduction first and then we'll move from there. So I have labored much over what to share with you. I have read, as I already said, a lot of Christian books describing the breakdown of the church and marriages and families. These books have explained the downward spiral of our culture into the abyss of sexual debauchery that we now find ourselves living within. They describe the social, philosophical, and cultural milestones that have brought us to this point, and they warn of the dangers of accepting these things as normal. We all know we can't accept what the world is doing and call it normal. For a while, I wondered if I should recount the basic facts of these things to you with the intent to warn you. But in the end, I don't think you are wrestling with the blatant temptations and enticements of unbelievers. I don't think that that is the thing that we in our church are wrestling with. I think the struggles and temptations of churched believers, particularly here, are a little bit more subtle. Because there has been an absence of solid biblical teaching on the topic of sexual intimacy within the church at large, that void has been filled with various types of instruction in the name of Christianity. And this is why it gets concerning and scary. From Christian psychologists and therapists to bloggers and Bible study teachers, there is a mountain of poor teaching. Oh, you can find books on the topic. Just do an Amazon search. You'll find things. But the majority of what you're going to find is not good stuff to be reading. You can find blogs on the topic. You can probably find podcasts, I imagine, as well. I haven't looked there. But the majority of what you are going to find is not going to be biblical. As is common, they do not often correctly, they can often correctly identify the problems, but they often fail to bring accurate solutions and real long-term help because sadly they don't begin with God and his word. So what I am actually going to do is I'm going to begin by reading an excerpt from a book on the topic of sexual intimacy written by a Christian psychologist. Christian. 
I have reduced the details to capture the main points. So this was actually kind of long. So what I did is I've kind of shrunk it down just to get the main points so that you can kind of hear what he's saying. And what I want you guys to do as I'm reading through this, I want you guys to be evaluating what is being said. And I'm telling you up front on purpose because I want you to think very critically about what I'm reading. So just to give you a little hint, he kind of missed the main point. So that ought to help a little. <clears throat> so try to identify the statements he makes that are man-centered or false. And okay, so I'll just tell you the, the things that I picked out are actually on your outline. So, you know, you can follow along if you want. <laughs> but I did that as well because I want you to be able to actually see them and see what I'm talking about because I think it's going to help it stick in your mind a little bit better. So let me begin. Jim and Karen were both virgins when they got married 21 years ago. Like many young couples, they had fairly unrealistic views of what sex would be like. Hit and miss might be a pretty good description of their sex life after the honeymoon. They never really got a handle on things until almost 15 years into their marriage. Here's what happened. Jim was always looking for, and worse, thinking he had found, the magic bullet. He tried something new, the way he held Karen, cradled her, or tenderly touched her. Okay, this is key, he would think. This will unlock her sexual fury. Well, Karen really did enjoy that new touch. She learned that Jim was certain to do that exact same thing for the next 50 to 100 times. He became so predictable that what once made her hotter than an August day now turned her into a glacier. Jim would get frustrated thinking, but never verbalizing. So I didn't put that on your notes, but that's problem number one right there. I, I know I'm doing this right. It worked that one time. Why isn't it working now? When I met with Jim, I laid it out for him. Jim, your wife appears to like a little more variety than you do. Your wife wants more than that. I saw a light bulb go on in Jim's mind. What I was saying was making sense. Here's your job, Jim, I continued. Your wife will not be the same woman on Tuesday evening sexually that she was on Saturday morning. Your job is to figure out which way the wind is blowing on that particular day. It didn't take much more than that. Jim adopted a new mindset and, according to Karen, became a virtuoso of the bedroom. Now, seven years later, sex permeates virtually everything Jim and Karen do. If you haven't experienced this, you wouldn't believe what an amazing marital glue good sex can be. One Friday, Jim got an email from Karen. It was the first thing he saw when he sat down in his office. Great news, the email began. The younger kids are going to be at grandma's house tonight and the older boys will be gone at youth group. I made reservations at eight for Palazzi's, which was Jim's favorite restaurant. If you can come home by six, that'll give us a good hour and a half to enjoy the hors d'oeuvres, which I plan to be wearing. By the way, if you look in your briefcase, you'll find a Polaroid. Consider it your pre-dinner menu. <clears throat> Can't wait to see you, your Karen. You know what Jim said to himself after reading that email? Keep in mind, he was in a dead-end job. Financial pressures were mounting. His boss was a jerk who made Jim's daily life difficult. But even so, Jim closed the email and said to himself, I'm the luckiest man alive. Having a great sex life is an exhilarating experience. It can bond a husband and a wife in a way that's unequaled in human experience. Knowing that your bride really does care for you 
knowing that your husband desires your body more than anything else affirms a man and a woman in a profound in profound and multiple ways. Jim and Karen's kids benefited greatly from this email, by the way. When Jim and Karen finally picked up the younger kids from Grandma's house, Jim couldn't wait to see them. Because he was sexually satisfied, he could focus fully on being there for his kids. And don't think that the kids didn't notice how affectionate Jim and Karen were that evening. It gave them a sense of security and happiness, making them think, we're in the best family anyone could be in. Sexual fulfillment didn't come overnight for Jim and Karen, but when it came, it changed everything about their home. To tell you the truth, Jim would die for Karen. He'd take a bullet for her without thinking twice. There's nothing he wouldn't do for her. So I counted, and it's probably not all of them, but I counted seven statements that lead to wrong expectations about sex and marriage. And that's what you have on your outline. Some of these statements may have measures of truth in them, but they also leave too much room for faulty thinking. So I'm going to just go over those quickly. <clears throat> and I actually do have a point to all of this. Why are we looking at a bad example? Because I think you guys need to be aware of what a bad example looks like. Can you recognize it when you hear it? Or do you think because a Christian person is giving you advice, it sounds pretty good. Like if you just read the story straight through, maybe you would think it sounded pretty good. But it's not. It's very dangerous. Number one, sex permeates virtually everything Jim and Karen do. If you haven't experienced this, you wouldn't believe what an amazing marital glue good sex can be. So, is sex the glue that keeps a marriage together? No. If you struggle with sex, does that mean your marriage may not survive? We certainly hope not. Number two, having a great sex life is an exhilarating experience. It can bond a husband and a wife in a way that's unequaled in human experience. So I would say that there is some truth to that statement. Sex is how we become one flesh. God designed it for unique intimacy between husbands and wives. But what if you struggle to have great sex? Does that mean you are missing out on having that special bond? Do you see what's going on here? Number three, knowing that your husband desires your body more than anything else affirms a man and a woman in profound and multiple ways. Do I want my husband to desire my body more than anything else? Let's just think this through for a half a sec. What happens when I get older and my body changes? I won't feel very affirmed anymore. If my husband desires my body more than anything else, is this what keeps him faithful to me? Keeps his eyes from looking at pornography? If that is the case, then I need to put a lot of emphasis on my physical body and keeping it looking good so that he will continue to be faithful to me. So what have we done by one little statement? But these are statements that are made an awful lot. And if we don't recognize what's happening, we believe them. And then we start to adopt these things thinking, I need to look good. I want my husband to love me and to love my body. I want him to, what does he say? Desire my body more than anything else. Now, we know that he shouldn't. He should desire God more. And, but the, here's, here's the danger. 
is sometimes we separate our sexual relationship with our husband from our relationship with the Lord as though they're two different things. And so we can hear this and go, oh, yeah, okay, and not realize it's totally unbiblical. But you can see the spiral that it leads to and the terrible places that will end up. If we have to trust in our body for our husbands to be faithful to us, that's an awful place to be because we are not going to be able to trust in that. We trust our God who works in their hearts and draws them to himself. God is the one that we trust in to keep our husbands faithful and walking with God and loving God with all their hearts. Number four, because he was sexually satisfied, he could focus fully on being there for his kids. Again, is good sex what makes a man a good father? If your husband struggles in his role as a father, does that put the pressure on you to give him great sex so that then he can become a good father? Again, it's ludicrous. Number five, it gave them a sense of security and happiness. It gave the children a sense of security and happiness. Is it great sex in a marriage that brings security and happiness to children? No. Number six, it changed everything about their home. I don't want a home where good sex all of a sudden makes my home wonderful. Is great sex what changes a home from mediocre or poor to wonderful? And then number seven, there's nothing he wouldn't do for her. Is great sex what makes a man committed to his wife? Is it the thing that will motivate him to lay down his life for her? No, and it can't be, and we can't expect that. But here's the thing. We subtly expect some of these things and don't even realize that's what we're doing. And so then we put the emphasis on the wrong thing. And then we take and carry burdens we should never be carrying because of people that call themselves Christians and teach things like this. That's why I love that book, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, because he comes from an entirely different perspective, and we're going to look a little bit at that tonight. This is a godless and worldly mindset. To think that good sex is the basis for a good marriage, a good family, and a happy life is exactly what the world promotes. Only in our current culture, we see it in much more blatant expressions. And I thought this was interesting because as I've been preparing for this, I've been listening to sermons as well. And I actually had listened to a couple of sermons by John MacArthur from actually 20 years ago. So just keep that in your mind. I'm going to read a little bit of what he said here. And he gave a little bit more explanation. Um, I'm not going to really go into a whole lot of worldly mindset, but he said, the freedom of sexual expression is so demanded that it has become the God that in some ways is ruling over all the other gods in our culture. To put that into an illustrated form, we want to allow people sexual freedom at any cost if it means they have to kill the product of that sexual union. 
Therefore, the sexual fulfillment itself is more important than life. We want our sexual freedom, even if it means murder of the victim of that freedom. He goes on and he says, looking over at the homosexual community, they want their freedom, even if it means the whole population dies of AIDS, because you remember about 20, 25 years ago, that was the issue. You see, we've come to the point where we so totally are consumed with sexual behavior that we literally live with unspeakable, unthinkable consequences. 20 years later in our culture, things have gone from bad to worse. People now determine their personal identity based on their sexual preferences. I'm straight, I'm bisexual, gay, lesbian, transgender, and I'm just basically skimming over this. You guys know these go into very deep debauchery in many ways. Christians don't readily accept these lies when they become that blatant. We all know not to go there. We know to protect our kids from those things. But when these same lies slip in under the radar in a nicely packaged Christian self-help book, the Christian's guard goes down and they are much more willing to read and accept what is said. The lies that direct the, cult, the secular culture are the same lies Christians are being fed, only the packaging is different. So what is the lie? That good sex Sexual freedom, fulfillment of sexual desires is the basis for a fulfilled, happy, and successful life. Perhaps the Christian doesn't go looking for this outside of marriage, but instead it becomes the expectation within marriage. So we aren't looking necessarily in our circles to fulfill our sexual desires outside of the marriage like unbelievers are doing. But what happens is we take some of these wrong ways of thinking, we take some of these lies, and we bring them in to the marriage and then expect that our marriage should fulfill us or we put pressures on ourselves to fulfill our husbands to have this great sex that's talked about all the time. Now, I want to be careful to say sex can be great. If you haven't experienced that, it can be great. But that is not the goal. That's not where, what we are pursuing more than anything else. We must have a true, biblical, godly understanding of sex, not a warped, self-serving, perverse acceptance or pursuit of it. I'm not saying sex isn't important because it is important, and it is important in marriage. And that's one of the reasons why we wrestle, is it not? Because we know that it's important, and we want to function rightly within it, so that it is a beautiful thing between us and our husbands. But the problem is, is when we come at it from a worldly perspective, we're never going to, re to reap the joy and benefit and beauty of it that God has for us. And that's why we have to come to scripture and look for it in scripture. What is it? What are we seeking? What should our mindset be about this? So good sex should be the fruit of a good marriage, not 
the source of a good marriage. And that's where the worldly mindset comes in, that sex is the source of all happiness and, and fulfillment. And if we're looking for that in our marriages and, our mar and, and we're struggling with that, we're struggling to communicate well with our husbands, we're struggling for it to be the case, then we're going to be sadly disappointed and disillusioned. Probably every one of us knows that sex is an important aspect of marriage. And most of us, if we desire to have a good, God-honoring, and strong marriage, really do want to have a good sex life with our husbands. But depending on where each of us are in our marriages, what our experiences have been, and what our expectations are, we may even at times wonder if it can be achieved. And I would say probably every woman in this room comes from a different background experience, different circumstances, different perspectives on what sex should look like and what your view of it is. All those things play into how we view it. And all of us need to bring that into conformity with the Word of God. Some experiences can produce very, very difficult hurdles to overcome. Sexual abuse is huge and difficult to overcome. Promiscuity before marriage can be another very difficult hurdle to overcome. Even physical and health challenges can be very difficult. Challenging marriage relationships, if your husband and you are struggling in other aspects of your marriage, that can uh, prove to be very difficult when it comes to sexual intimacy. Wrestles with ongoing sin like pornography, whether it's your husband or whether it's you, all these things can prove really big hurdles to overcome. So I want to acknowledge all of these things, and I really do want to speak very compassionately to all of you. And my goal and desire is to not say things that in any way would be hurtful. If you are confused by what I say, if I sound insensitive in anything that I say, if I sound too casual in something I say, please, please, please come and talk to me afterward because that is not my heart, that is not my desire. My desire is to help, to encourage, and to enable you to be able to pursue a beautiful, wonderful, intimate relationship with your husband. That's the goal. But sometimes as a teacher, when you stand up here and you think through things and you're processing, you don't always think about every little thing. And so sometimes you can say things that might sound a little bit callous or that might sound like, well, you don't get it at all. But that is not my goal. So as I said, if that is the case, talk to your small group leaders come talk to me and we'll work those things out. I know that these things are often accompanied by pain, shame, or guilt that make it really hard to hope or believe that things can change. Now, I am talking a little bit more right now to some of the deeper challenges that I know women face. But maybe you're not on that side of the spectrum. Maybe things are great for you. And if they are, that's wonderful. 
And let me just say to you, excel still more. Keep on doing the good work. And praise the Lord that your experience is a good one. Because in the world that we live in, that is not always very common. Because sex is so intimate and so personal that it makes us so vulnerable in that private place that to think about it, to talk about it, to open up about it, even with our husbands, can be very, very, very painful. So anyways, I am going to keep moving on, but I just want you all to know that my heart is, if I was sitting in the counseling room with you, I would hear your heart, and I would love you, and I would work through it with you. So that is my heart as I stand up here because we're not in the counseling room. So on your outline, do I want God's glory or my desires in intimacy? So we've talked about what the world's perspective is, a pursuit of great sex. <clears throat> so basically, if you don't get that, then your marriage is um, not that great, subpar, whatever you want to call it. So what we have to do is we have to evaluate what is it that we want more than anything else. And remember, going back to that very first lesson that we talked about, do I want God's glories or do I want my own desires? And the same is true when it comes to sexual intimacy. Do, what do I want more than anything else? As we consider how to pursue intimacy in our marriages, we have to begin by asking ourselves this question. What do I want the most in my marriage and in intimacy? Do I want God's glory or do I want to fulfill my own desires? What we need to understand is that intimacy with our husbands will never be all that God has designed it to be if we want our own desires more than we want God's glory. This is where we draw the line to separate between biblical thinking and worldly thinking. What do I want? Because here's the thing. If we are struggling in our marriage, our marriage is wrestling in a particular area for whatever reason, and that is difficult, that makes sexual intimacy difficult. Are we willing to work through those things to find out what the sin is in our hearts that we're wrestling against so that we can enjoy sexual intimacy with our husbands? So what, what I'm trying to say here is that it, whatever place we are struggling, we have to be willing to bring that under submission to the word of God. So even something like sexual abuse, when things like that happen, when we are sinned against, I think I actually mentioned this later, but when we are sinned against, what is oftentimes the way we respond in turn? We often respond sinfully when we are sinned against. So that means that we have to be willing, if we are pursuing God's glory, that means that we have to identify in our hearts what the sin issues are that we bring into bed with our husbands, essentially. And we need to be willing to do the work that is required in order for God to be glorified. And that's where I don't know. That's going to be different for every woman here. 
Is it just that you're lazy? Is it that you're tired, that you're not willing to put out the effort? Or is it that you really do have big things to work through, trust issues? But whatever they are, they need to be worked through according to the word of God because as we work them out, God is glorified and not pursuing our own desires in whatever way that is because that's where we feel safe, that's where we feel protected, that's where we feel comfortable, whatever the situation is. So I think this is on your outline as well. Worldly thinking promotes the indulgence and satisfaction of self. It asserts a self-centered approach to sex that condones and encourages pleasing self as most important. The biblical approach to intimacy is to seek to first please God, then to please your spouse. Our personal pleasure is secondary, but a sweet reward when both Husbands and wives seek to accomplish this. So I'm going to read this quote that I've already read to you, I know, at least a couple of times, but I'm going to read it again. This is Dave Harvey, and he says this, Marriage was not just invented by God. It belongs to God. It actually exists for him more than it exists for you and me and our spouses. Marriage is not first about me or my spouse. Obviously, the man and the woman are essential, but they are also secondary. God is the most important person in a marriage. Marriage is for our good, but it is first for God's glory. So this includes sexual intimacy since it is an aspect of our marriage. First, it is for God's glory. As we approach sexual intimacy, we need to seek to respond in our hearts with an attitude and a motive that pleases God. I realize that your next thought might be, I do want to do that, but I don't know how. And that's what we're, Lord willing, hopefully going to look at tonight and really probably even more next week. So on your outline, sin destroys. So, oh, I didn't bring the little chart thing up here. So this is kind of a little thing, that second handout that you have. Um, so... Sometimes I think visuals, visuals are even help, helpful for me. But what I did is I made that because I wanted you to see all the different aspects of sinfulness. And that's not, that's not everything because after I made that, I continued to think of more things. But look at that list and you can take it home and consider like what, what areas of sin do you wrestle with in your life that you bring into the marriage bed? What things do you struggle with? Because all of that, and it can be from things like from one end of the spectrum of, of uh, sexual abuse, sinful responses to sexual abuse, like unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and things like that, all the way to the other side where it's like, I don't want to do it. I'm tired. I've had a hard day. Leave me alone. So all and everything in between, and no matter what, area we wrestle all of those things need to be brought into conformity with the word of God so I just thought that might be helpful as you are looking through it it was helpful for me even as I was thinking through it so there you go 
We need to evaluate how and where we are thinking about these things wrongly, and we must learn from Scripture how to think biblically about it. Only as we have a high view of Christ and a desire to please Him, desiring to bring glory to God, will we be willing to address the broken, painful, even humiliating areas of past experiences and repenting of sin when necessary and seeking wholeness in Christ. So wherever you fall on that spectrum of various sins, they need to be wrestled through, repented of, and what do we do with our minds? We set aside the sinful ways of thinking. So that means that you take those thoughts captive. Wrong ways of thinking about sexual intimacy. You have to, you have to recognize them. You have to set them aside. You have to fill your mind with the truth of Scripture. And then you put on obedience to the Word of God. See, that principle, no matter what we're talking about, always is what we need to do if we are going to, going to grow in sanctification, even as it relates to sexual intimacy. So this is a quote here from John Piper from book, the book Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. And he says this, which I just thought was such a beautiful quote. He says, My conviction is that the better you know the supremacy of Christ, the more sacred and satisfying and Christ-exalting your sexuality will be. I have a picture in my mind of the majesty of Christ like the sun at the center of the solar system of your life. The massive sun, 333 times the mass of the earth, holds all the planets in orbit, even little Pluto, 3.6 billion miles away. So it is with the supremacy of Christ in your life. All the planets of your life sexuality and desires, your commitments and beliefs, your aspirations and dreams, your attitudes and convictions, your habits and disciplines, your solitude and relationships, your labor and leisure, your thinking and free all, the planets, all the planets of your life are held in orbit by the greatness and gravity and blazing brightness of the supremacy of Jesus Christ at the center of your life. If he ceases to be the bright, blazing, satisfying beauty at the center of your life, the planets will fly into confusion. A hundred things will be out of control and sooner or later they will crash into destruction. He covers so many things as he's talking about Christ being supreme in our lives but it also includes this area of our lives as well. Apart from God's word and the guidance and understanding provided by the Holy Spirit, we will self-destruct. But not only that, we have an enemy who wants to destroy our lives. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy. He delights to start when we are very young by twisting and distorting our understanding of our sexuality to set us on the path of destruction. Sin destroys. And if Satan can lead us down a path of sinfulness, we will destroy our lives by our sin. And, of course, we know that that's exactly what we do in our marriages. When we bring sin into our marriages... We will destroy our marriages if we don't stop and repent. 
That is why our sexuality becomes secondary to our desire to bring glory to God. Only as we desire to please him will we have the motivation to work through the challenges that lead to joyful intimacy with our husbands. Sin taints, it destroys, it distorts what sex is meant to be. So in order to better understand the value and beauty of sex, we need to begin always by looking into scripture to see the greatness of our God and then measuring our assumptions expectations, and understanding of sexuality by it. So I think this is on your outline as well. Where we see our sin, we must repent, bringing our will into subjection with the will of God. So one thing we need to keep in mind is that often when we are sinned against, we respond sinfully, and I already mentioned that. Any sin is destructive, even when it is in response to others' sin against us. If you experience sexual sin committed against you, it is important that you identify your sinful responses that you have not dealt with because you will struggle to think rightly and biblically about sexual intimacy as long as you harbor sin in your heart in that area. If you have bitterness or unforgiveness or resentment or whatever else in your heart, you are not going to function in sexual intimacy with your husband because you are bringing this baggage into your marriage bed that is harmful and destructive. In case you think that your situation is more difficult or impossible than someone else's, I'm basically going to describe to you what Paul was addressing, the culture. And just very, very briefly, Paul was evangelizing and starting churches in a society where sex permeated everything in that society. And we look at our society and we say the same thing, right? Like, it's, it's everywhere we look. Sex sells everything. And yet, as we will see, he encouraged and expected the believers to respond in sanctification and purity in the midst of that perverted culture. God can redeem past and present sin and pain, unbiblical ways of thinking, and enable you to delight in intimacy with your husband. But we have to be willing to put in the work. And that's where it gets difficult because there's a lot of reasons why we aren't necessarily willing to put the work in. And it may just even be that you have several little kids and you're really tired and you don't want to put the work in because you're tired. But even that is sinfulness because it's selfish and it's lazy. It's not loving. It's seeking your own. And so all of those things we have to consider. So what I'm going to do, if you guys have brought your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm just going to read this. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But I'm going to begin by reading this because then I'm going to explain a little bit about the culture that Paul was writing to. So I want this to be in your mind as we're looking at those other things. So 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, reading 3 through 8. He says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress, transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul is writing this to a culture steeped in sexual immorality and in so much debauchery. But what is he saying? What is God's will for you? Sanctification, that you would grow more and more to look like Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. He says that you would possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. He's talking about your own body there, that you would possess your own body there in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. He says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother. Don't use other people to satisfy your own selfish, sinful, sexual desires. And he says, he who rejects this is not rejecting man. So he's saying, you're not just rejecting my teacher as a man. You are rejecting the teaching and instruction of God. So, as I said, I'm not going to go ahead and explain all of that, but I want that to be running through your mind because what I'm going to do, and I actually got this, that same sermon that I was listening to, John MacArthur actually broke this down, and I thought it was helpful in just giving kind of a brief summary overview of the culture, and Chris has somewhat done this as well. But what he did is, because the Greek language is such an, or was such an extensive language, they had words for all kinds of things. English is not nearly as extensive as Greek was at that time. And so they had different words for all different kinds of sexual activities that were going on within the culture. So all he did is he gave the word and explained the definition. And that alone is enough to show you what they thought was normal for life. So the first word, and I am going to butcher these words, so we'll just get that out of the way, and I'm not going to spend time talking about how I butcher them. So the first word is porn. It literally means the purchasable one, the, the, the one you buy, the harlot, the whore, or the prostitute. So prosti prostitution was apparently legal and rampant. So this was the one-night stand. You pay for it. It's done. Then the second one was purn me, and it sums up all the filthy business of making a living by prostitution. So this is the entire business of it with the pimps that have, you know, the whole organization, the whole house, and, you know, lots of rooms, lots of girls, that whole thing. So we have the individual, now we have the whole business. Then we have the word pulok, which means concubine. A concubine was a slave whose primary function was to fulfill sexual desire. Literally, you purchased the concubine, you added her to your fold of concubines, and you used her for sexual pleasure. That too was legal, and that too was rampant. So there was the one-time woman you purchased, the whole business of prostitution, and then there was the long-term purchase of the woman that now came into your harem, I guess you would maybe say. And she was strictly there to be used for sexual pleasures. And then number four, we have a terry. 
This was different than the concubine. You didn't buy this woman. This was a friend. She was an intellectual friend, most likely. Typically, men and women had these kinds of friends outside their marriage. So, by the way, your wife was primarily to take care of the house, cook the meals, keep the clothes clean, and watch the children. The wife was not primarily the sexual partner. Sexual fulfillment was found in the one-time enterprise of the prostitute or the long-term responsibility of a concubine or the now-and-then relationship to this friend. And then five, there was the, uh, this word, morchos, refers to the adulterer or the adulteress, which that's self-explanatory. That was having sex with somebody else's spouse. And as he said, it was going on all of the time in the um, culture at Thessalonica there. And then six, was unmarried young men were also allowed to have, oh, this isn't actually a word, I guess he was just summing this up, but um, young men were allowed to have intercourse with mistresses. So they could engage themselves with prostitutes and they could engage themselves with mistresses whose parents were not full citizens of the Roman Empire. So if her parents were full citizens, they, she was off limits. They weren't allowed to mess around with her. But anybody else, young unmarried men were actually encouraged to engage in this kind of uh, lifestyle. So then seven, now we go even a step further to add temple prostitutes to that. So they taught that if you have relationship with a priestess, prostitute, a priestess or a prostitute, you are communing with the deity she represents. The way to get in touch with the deity is by the sexual liaison with a priestess. The temple in Corinth, for example, had 3,000 temple prostitutes to get people in contact with the deity. So that's all I have to say pretty much. One last thing, though, because on top of all of that debauchery, they had homosexuality, they had pedophilia, and all other kinds of deviant things going on within the culture. So when I read to you from Thessalonians, and he's saying, be sanctified, be set apart from sexual lusts. This is the culture to which he was writing. And this was the culture to who he wrote in Corinth as well, because this dominated the Roman Empire at the time. Imagine for a moment all the wrong thinking regarding sexual intimacy and marriage. Everything they knew about sex and intimacy was worldly and godly. That was their entire mindset because they had no influence from any place else. That's all they knew. When Paul explained that they should be pure, that they shouldn't use others for their own sexual pleasure, that sexual intimacy was designed to be only between a husband and wife for life, these things would have blown their minds. So imagine coming out of that kind of a lifestyle. Imagine all the wrong ways of thinking you would have about sexual intimacy. And yet, Paul says, be sanctified, be pure. And then, and I didn't put this on here, but remember what he says to the Corinthians such were some of you, but you've been washed. 
that is no longer who you are. So if we in any way think that we're too far gone or our culture is too far gone, that is not the case because the Roman culture was as bad or worse than ours. The difficulty with our culture is that we have it accessible on our phones at any moment, at any time, and it, it pervades everything, every aspect of our lives as a result of that. But the things that were legal, the things that were going on, the things that were expected was a debauched culture. So the joy and wonder of this is that when we look into the word, we realize if that's what they were called to and expected to live, then when we look at scripture, we can go, okay, it's no different for us than it was for them. And they could do it. So can we. We can live in a manner that brings honor and glory to God in our marriages. And we have a great advantage because we're in the church. We hear at least some teaching on this. So we are not coming from such a debauched mindset is as those in the Roman culture. What we see in both our culture and in the Roman culture is that the act of sex has been degraded to simply a physical urge and pleasure that should be indulged and enjoyed whenever and with whomever. So obviously that is not our understanding within the church but I also don't think we fully grasp the beauty and relational intimacy that God had in mind when he created sex. It is much more than the simple act of passion, a physical expression. It is the deepest intimacy, deepest human expression of love, camaraderie, friendship, and even ownership as husbands and wives come together. It is more than the acceptance of beauty, charm, sensuality, and sexiness. It is a wholehearted love, commitment, vulnerability, and opportunity for trust. And that's where sometimes it can get difficult as well, particularly if we've been hurt. Why are sexual sins and sexual difficulties in marriage so hard? Because sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is the deepest, most personal and familiar human relationship. Whether we realize it or not, in intimacy, we let the other person into the most vulnerable place in our heart and life. In order for us to fully grasp the significance, we've got to look again at scripture. So I thought it might be helpful to kind of look at this backwards first. So from James, you remember what he says in James 4.4. He says, you adulteresses, addressing Christians, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he says, adulteresses. Why would James refer to Christians who love the world as adulteresses? Well, the reason why is because of that intimate relationship that we have with Christ through salvation. It's so intimate, it's so personal that when we choose to love the world more than we love Christ, it is the same as if we have become an adulteress pursuing sinful things that Christ died for 
So see, sexual intimacy is entirely related to the beauty of our salvation through Christ. And that's why it's so significant. That's why we have to think about it from this perspective so that we realize the beauty and wonder of it. And if we allow our minds to continue to think in worldly ways, we aren't going to be able to appreciate the beauty and wonder and value of it. So we are actually going to look at Ezekiel, but before we get there, a couple more things. The salvation we have through Jesus Christ is so personal, so intimate that the sexual union in marriage is the only way we can possibly understand both the deep riches of the relationship and the tragic betrayal of sin. And John Piper said this, God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love and what it means to turn away from him to others. Because if we didn't have that vulnerable place in our hearts, that intimate place in our hearts, we wouldn't be able to understand the significance of of needing to hate our sin to the degree that we need to hate it. And so God has given us this beautiful picture between husbands and wives that enable us to see the, the vulnerability, the trust, the closeness of that relationship so that then we can see the beauty of Christ and not want to to harm that relationship by pursuing sin and worldly things. So see on your outline a picture of the intimate relationship we have with Christ. And this is kind of long, so I'm going to try and go through it quickly as far as just reading through Ezekiel here. So um, Ezekiel 16, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. This is a description of God's redemption of Israel. Notice the beauty of his love, his protection, his kindness and generosity poured out. Then I want you to see how Israel responds. She betrays her God to pursue wickedness. God brings judgment, but ultimately he fulfills his covenant that he made with her in the beginning by sending his son to redeem her and make her his own. So Piper says this about it. What we hear God say about his love for his people Israel in the Old Testament is all the more true of his relationship to those who believe in his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Sorry, I'm debating because this is long. So I'm going to skip some of this. So um, we're going to start reading in verse 4. And like I said, I'm just going to go over this. But I really do want you to pay attention to the love that God had for his people as as he sought them out. And then the rejection as they turned from him. And then what he says at the very end. So he says, starting in Ezekiel 16, verse 4, As your birth on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of the things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. 
when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, live. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and I saw you and I beheld. You were at that time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. Do you hear the love of God for his chosen people, Israel? Then in verse 13, Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which never which should never come about nor happen. And then skipping down to verse 33, so, or verse 32. So you've seen now, God was the one that, 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 that took them in, that loved them, that made them beautiful. And then what did they do? They turned from him. This is the adulteress. They turned from their God to pursue wickedness. So then verse 32, you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband, men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. And verse 35, therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And then, so that is God's judgment now coming upon them for their, their disobedience, for their adultery, and walking away from the God who had rescued them, who had saved them, who had chosen them, made them his own. They walked away, and so God, as a God of holiness, had to bring judgment upon them. So then in verse 59... For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So God is remembering the covenant that he made because this is the kind of God that we have. He made a covenant with the children of Israel. And he will uphold that. 
Verse 62, thus I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord declares, because ultimately how did God keep his covenant with the children of Israel? He sent our savior, Jesus Christ, And again, reading that one um, phrase from John Piper, what we hear God say about his love for his people, Israel and the Old Testament, is all the more true of his relationship to those who believe in his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This applies to us as well as we look at this. So, okay, why? what does this really have to do with what I'm talking about with sexuality? Because as you can see, God has given us this relationship between husband and wife so that we can understand what was going on even with the children of Israel when he plucked them up and chose them to be a people of his own. He did the same for you and me. He chose us to be his own. Do we understand that significance so that we hate our sin and don't want to turn from him? And here's the thing. That is as we think through intimacy in our marriages, we are representing what? Christ and the church. As we choose to embrace our sinfulness in our intimate relationship with our husband, we are acting like an adulteress choosing our sin over Christ. Does that make sense? Are you seeing the importance of this? We have the wonderful and amazing opportunity to reflect our right response to Christ by giving ourselves an intimacy to our husbands. By loving him well, when we respond sinfully, it reflects the character of Israel who forsook God as an adulteress rather than loving and worshiping him. Paul describes that relationship in Ephesians 5 when he talks about husbands. He says, love your wives just as what? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Seeing the beauty of God's redemption of us and the intimate personal relationship we have with Christ should be the basis for which we seek to love our husbands well in sexual intimacy. My love for Christ should overflow toward my husband in a manner that seeks to respond to him as the church does to Christ. It isn't all about me, and it isn't all about what I can get, and it isn't even all about having great sex. It isn't even about me and my husband. It's about having an attitude that seeks to honor and please our Savior in response to all that he has done to redeem us so that God is glorified. So next week we are going to talk about the practical aspects of this, but I didn't feel like I could jump into that until you understood the foundation of it. What is the motivation? Why should I seek 
to put aside sinful ways of thinking, even if it comes from very difficult childhood experiences, those things still need to be worked out so that you can think rightly about it, so that you can respond rightly in intimacy with your husband so that we can, as husbands and wives, reflect the beauty of the relationship between Christ and the church that he gave his blood to save. And that should motivate us to be selfless and to pour ourselves out in this way to our husbands. Let's pray.